And turn with me to the, the gospel according to God, Genesis. Genesis chapter 5. As we work our way through this wonderful book of beginnings. One of the foundational works in Christian literature has to certainly include Augustine's The City of God. It's actually one of the cornerstones of Western thought. And in it, Augustine expounds the profound questions of theology and humanity, such questions as the question about suffering, the existence of evil, the conflict between free will and divine sovereignty, and even the doctrine of sin. But primarily, and and perhaps the vehicle he uses to discuss this, is he presents human history as a conflict between two distinct groups. What Augustine calls the city of earth, or the city of man, and the city of God. Between the ungodly and the godly. The city of God, the godly are marked as people who forego earthly pleasure and dedicate themselves to the truths of God. The ungodly, the earthly, the city of man, on the other hand, consists of people who have immersed themselves in the cares and pleasures of this world. I think to a large extent, that is what is being presented in our text today. Two distinct peoples, two distinct lines, two distinct genealogies, two cities side by side, the godly and the ungodly. Look with me at verse 1 in chapter 5. Moses writes, this is the written account of Adam's line. When God created man, he created them in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them. And when they were created, he called them man. When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. After Seth was born, Adam lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Adam lived 930 years and then he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he became the father of Enosh. And after he became the father of Enosh, Seth lived 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Seth lived 912 years, and then he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he became father of Kenan. And after he became father of Kenan, Enosh lived 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enosh lived 905 years, and then he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he became father of Mahalalel. And after he became father of Mahalalel, Kenan lived 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Kenan lived 910 years, and then he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he became father of Jared. And after he became father of Jared, Mahalalel lived 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Mahalalel lived 895 years, and then he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he became father of Enoch. 
And after he became father of Enoch, Jared lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Jared lived 962 years, and then he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he became father of Methuselah. And after he became father of Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived 365 years. Enoch walked with God. Then he was no more, because God took him away. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he became father of Lamech. And after he became father of Lamech, Methuselah lived 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Methuselah lived 969 years, and then he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he had a son. He named him Noah and said, He will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground that the Lord has cursed. After Noah was born, Lamech lived 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Lamech lived 777 years, and then he died. After Noah was 500 years old, he became father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Father God, help me as I communicate your gospel and the meaning of this text to your people. In spirit, we pray that you will be present in our minds and hearts to transform us from our worldly thinking to godly thinking. In Jesus' name, amen. This is the second of ten divisions that Moses embeds in the the book of Genesis. We read that in our first verse. This is the written account of Adam's line. Maybe some of yours have, this is the book of the generations of. There are ten of those. We've already gone through one in chapters 2, 3, and 4, a generation of, which details out the, the position we were created in, the temptation and fall and the curse of man. And so we come to chapter 5, verse 1, where there is another section that goes all the way through to chapter 6, verse 8. That's the next section that God wants us to look at. And this section is dominated by a 10-generation genealogy, right? This is something that we usually just go, "Uh uh-huh, and go to the next page. But I think that there's a lot to be said here. As a matter of fact, Martin Luther, one of the reformers, said that in his commentary that uh, we usually skip over these ten people, but these are ten of the most exceptional people that have ever lived in the world. We're not told an awful lot about them, but we are to take Second Timothy 3.16 seriously when all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for us spiritually. So what are we to make of this genealogy? Are we supposed to get anything out of it? Here's a little help when you're doing Bible study. Always ask, what is the context? What's the context that this genealogy is in? And when you ask that one question, you see that it is placed right after. (laughs) It's okay. Don't worry about it. This happens. It is placed right after the genealogy of Cain, isn't it, that we studied last week. 
the genealogy of Cain. Back in chapter 4, verses 17 through 24, we have this genealogy, a genealogy of, as we looked at last week, of degeneration, placed right next to a genealogy of regeneration. A line of immorality that is placed right next to a line of walking with God. A genealogy of despair next to a genealogy of hope. One of ungodliness next to one of godliness. And we are meant to see a difference, aren't we? We're meant to see that there is a wide rift that has developed in mankind. A wide rift that has developed in mankind. Here we start to get a bigger and clearer picture of what God spoke in his uh, curse of the serpent back in Genesis 3.15 when he said there will be enmity between your offspring and hers. There we noted that there is obviously a messianic hint there, but there is also an indication that there will be two people groups on the earth, the godly and the ungodly, the city of man and the city of God. And we see this most strikingly when God draws our attention, as I know all your attention was drawn to, verses 21 through 24 with Enoch. It's different, right? You have this cadence you've gotten into after six generations. And then in the seventh generation, that cadence is broken. Why? So that we stop and say, hmm, what's going on here? God is saying something here. And I think one of the things that you, if you do a little bit of study, you see that in Cain's generation, Lamech is the seventh generation, and Enoch is the seventh generation in the godly genealogy. Lamech from Cain, Enoch from Adam. Lamech, as we looked at last week, was a murderous, boastful, vengeful polygamist. An exclamation point, if you will, on wickedness, right? While Enoch, we're told, walked with God. A synonym for saving faith. For fidelity to God. He trusted the promise. Guys, he just didn't live a moral life. He trusted the promise. That promise that we looked at in Genesis 3.15. He was faithful. He was godly. We're meant to see that difference in the seventh generation. God is highlighting the wide rift that has happened in mankind. While Lamech reveled in sin, Lamech endeavored to be godly. He devoted his life to God. That's what we read in Hebrews 11.5. It's always good to let Scripture interpret Scripture. What, does, what are we supposed to get out of Enoch here? Well, praise God, God tells us a little bit about Enoch. In Hebrews 11.5, he says, By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God took him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. Enoch lived a faithful life. He believed the promise. 
That's what it means to be faithful, guys. Let me just step back for a second. Guys, guys, you know what it means to be faithful? It doesn't mean living a moral life. It means believing in the promise of Christ. The moral life grows out of that. But to be faithful is believing in the promise of Christ. And that's still what it means today. In fact, in Jude, we're told a little bit more about Enoch where he, he preached faithfully. He, reached, he preached about the coming judgment of the ungodly. He preached about the promise of God that one day he would crush the seed of the serpent. And he preached this, did he catch it? For three hundred years. You know, we talk a little bit here about finishing well. We talk about persevering in the faith. And we talk about it in decades, maybe 20 years, 30 years. If you come to faith really early, maybe 40 or 50 years, 300 years. And then we're told that he was raptured. He was taken away. Does that mean that he lived such a super spiritual life that he was so faithful that God said, I'm going to reward you? I don't think so. What kind of message would that send to God's people? Performance, exactly. I've got to do well. I've got to perform well. That's not the message of the gospel. No, and then he died as the refrain. I think what this is meaning is that God is communicating to his people that even in the midst of the times of Noah, when the rift was getting bigger and bigger, that God still was sovereign even over death. That refrain that we heard in each person's life, right? And then he died, and then he died. But you know what? God is more powerful even than the curse. Yes, the curse is there, but God is more powerful. If he wants somebody not to experience death, that's a nonce for him. (laughs) That's nothing. It was to awaken hope for his people of life after death. And that reminding us that living a faithful life has a different conclusion than it does for the ungodly. And so we see a stark difference between Enoch and Lamech, a wide rift between the city of God and the city of man. I think that there's a really easy and clear application to this, isn't there? The rift should be so noticeable in our lives that people actually take notice, that people stop and take notice. There should be a rift, a difference, a contrast between the godly and the ungodly, between the city of man and the city of God. Someone should be able to look at you and me and see a difference, a difference on how we approach life, not as self-seekers and me-monsters, but as other-focused, 
They should see a difference, a noticeable gap in what we do. I was pondering some of the things that, that the community of God should be doing, and just one of them came to mind is, is there a difference in how we treat this day? The world should see a stark difference in the decisions we make. Singles. They should see a difference in who you are dating in order to marry. Teens. There should be a difference in who and when you even start dating. There should be a contrast in how we use our time, talents, and treasures. Not always for us, us, us but for others in the glory of God. There should be a difference in in how the the community looks at the community of God, shouldn't there? You know, you can say a lot about the Amish, but they put us to shame in this way, don't they? And when we say they live differently, they, they really care about each other. Can they say the same about this community of faith? A noticeable difference, a shocking difference. As the gospel of Jesus Christ soaks into our lives, it necessarily will begin to change you. Let me say something here that maybe some of you don't even want to happen. As the gospel soaks into your life, there will begin to be a rift between you and in the world. And it's not always comfortable. Now, I'm not talking about an exclusivity, but just in living your life, it will naturally happen. Maybe some of you here can even give testimony to that as you really begin to pursue God, that he is your all in all. Things start changing in your life, in your relationships. Not that you're pleased with that, Always. But this rift becomes more visible. There's a noticeable difference. Ron Hutchcraft, in his book, Living Peacefully in a Stressful World, describes a visit that he and his wife took to Fort Sumter in Charleston Bay. And Fort Sumter changed hands a couple times during the Civil War. And as the tour boat, he writes, approached Fort Sumter... He's writing, I wondered whether the guides would be dressed in blue or in gray. Sumter had been a Union fort in Confederate territory when the Civil War began. It had changed hands several times. When we were greeted at the gate by a man who was dressed in period military clothing, he was wearing a blue coat and gray pants. Perfectly correct, right? Unfortunately, that's many times how we approach it, isn't it? Yeah, I have on my gray pants today. But I'm going to put on my blue coat. Live a life that is almost indistinguishable from the culture around us. A life of compromise with the world. A life where the boundaries that God set, we break, we push, we move. There's no difference, no contrast, no rift. And actually, that's what we start seeing in verses 1 through 4 of our text. 
we see that the boundaries begin to be broken and the rift between the godly and the ungodly begins to narrow. Look at with me at verses 1 through 4. It says, When men began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of men were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards, when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, the men of renown. This is one of those texts where you go, okay, what's going on here? Right? Please. I think we're meant to see the difference between the city of God and the city of man start to deteriorate. We're meant to see that those boundaries are being broken so much and the rift is being narrowed. The godly and the ungodly, the difference begins to quickly and radically narrow. And we see this in what is widely considered the most debatable and difficult verse in the book of Genesis. The sons of God marrying the daughters of men and having children by them. What does this mean? Well, traditionally, there have been three interpretations of this. The first one is ancient kings, ancient rulers, took whomever they chose as wives and concubines. The sons of God being those early kings and rulers who abused their power by taking any, win, any, king, any uh, daughters from their kingdom they choose overstepping the bounds of their authority, abusing their authority, if you will. I mean, this isn't uncommon. We see this in history all the time. I was having breakfast with a dear brother, and he's reading a book about the presidents of the 20th century and their marriages. And he sat across from me and he said, which one of those presidents do you think had a marriage that, was, that, they were, uh, that, that was, had fidelity in it? I sat back and I was thinking and thinking and thinking. Only two of the 20th century presidents. Only two. We see that throughout history. Men abusing their power. Powerful people taking what they want. Power tends to corrupt. The second interpretation that's commonly given to this is that fallen angels are procreating with human women. Sons of God are angelic beings coming down and reproducing with the daughters of men, human women. Now, although this sounds outlandish, it has a lot of biblical support to it. You turn to such texts as 1 Peter 3 and 2 Peter 2 and Jude seems to be talking about these fallen angels in this time period, the time of Noah. Also see, you read in the book of, of Job and Daniel where the, this term sons of God is actually meant in referring to angels. Now before any of us dismiss this out of hand as myth, I want to read to you what probably one of the most esteemed commentators in the book of Genesis, Gordon Wenham, writes. He says, Those who believe that the Creator could unite himself to human nature in a virgin's womb will not find this story so outlandish. It's very convicting. The last interpretation relies heavily on the context. 
Last one is the ungodly and the godly begin intermarrying. Meaning the sons of God are the descendants of Seth and Noah, intermarrying with the daughters of men, the Canaanite line. And the godly distinctiveness begins to blur. This certainly would be consistent with the context, wouldn't it? Well-supported principle throughout Scripture also of keeping faith separate, right? We see this in, in the, uh, the Mosaic Law with the, the uh, Israelites being told not to intermarry with the nations around them. That's not an ethnic thing. It's a faithful thing. It has to do with your faith. Don't marry somebody who is not of the same faith as you. We see this also in 2 Corinthians 6 when Paul says, do not become unequally yoked, certainly in marriage, but also in other areas, in business, in pleasure. I think of businesses like Hobby Lobby and Chick-fil-A who have decided to take a stand on the godly side, right? And the abuse that they've taken. God wants there to be a visible, distinguishable difference. God wants the city of God to be distinct. So whatever interpretation you come to personally, one thing I think is clear from the text. Godly boundaries are being overstepped. Whether it's boundaries of power, spiritual purity, or the spiritual realm... God's boundaries are being overstepped. And that's a slippery slope for each and every one of us to contend with, isn't it? We bump up against the boundaries of God all the time. Whether it be who we marry. Whether it be how we treat the Sabbath. Whether it be what we watch on TV or what movies we go to. What games we play on our PlayStation or Xbox. What jokes we laugh at. Or what websites we click on. When we begin to overstep those boundaries in a consistent way in our own life, we begin to blur those lines of distinctiveness. The distinctiveness begins to fade and the rift begins to close. We begin to wear the blue coat and the gray pants all the time. And something else happens too. Did you catch it? In verse 3, God says... My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be a hundred and twenty years. When we overstep those bounds, we can expect that there will be discipline, that there will be judgment. Now, whether you believe that this is limiting our lifespans, or whether this is the countdown to the flood, the hundred and twenty years, you have to see this as God judging the boundaries being broken. Because God is long-suffering with our sin, people. He is long-suffering. But many times we confuse that with ever-suffering, don't we? He will suffer forever with my sin. No, that's not what he says in the Scripture. He says, I'm long-suffering. But there comes a point where he judges. Our flesh, we tend to trick ourselves. 
believe that he will bear with our sin forever. But there will come a time when God says, enough, enough. That's what Peter's trying to dispel in his second letter when he writes, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises as some understand slowness. You see, the people at that time were thinking the same thing. You know, God isn't coming. He's, he's never going to judge. And Peter's saying, no, 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 you're, you're misunderstanding his long-suffering. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but giving everyone but everyone a chance to come to him in repentance. People were beginning to think that because God's judgment had not come in such a long time, it was never going to come. But in the very next verse, very next verse, you know what Peter says? You all know it, actually. You all know this verse. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. He says, don't confuse God's long-suffering with ever-suffering. He will judge. There will come a time when he says enough. And that's what we see in verses 5 through 7. As the rift closes, he says enough. In verse 5, the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. And the Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth. And his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth. Men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and birds of the air. For I am grieved that I made them. The boundaries that were meant to retain the distinctiveness of the godly are gone and the rift closes. Wickedness explodes. That's what we're seeing here, guys. Wickedness just exploding. Every inclination of their hearts. I don't think that this is hyperbolic. I don't think that God is just saying, I'm going to say something outlandish so I get their attention. I think that wickedness was actually exploding on the earth. It was unhinged. As the boundaries of God collapses, it unhinges sin. You know, many people look at pre-1960 America as like this, this Christian panacea, don't we? We look back and go, oh man, that's how, that's how it should be. The heyday. I have no evidence of this, but my, my intuition is that there are no more Christians then than there are today. But what is different from today and back then is we had these godly boundaries that society as a whole agreed upon. We had this moral decency. Even they lived within the godly boundaries of such things as the definition of marriage, which we're struggling with today. The sanctity of marriage is pretty much gone today. Cohabiting. The Sabbath. They had their blue laws. They weren't bad. They were societal. We have nothing. 
views on the acceptance of homosexuality and abortion. Boundaries gone. Gender confusion. It wasn't even on their minds. But now these boundaries are pretty much evaporated, aren't they? The beast within, as we said, is let loose. We're beginning to witness human depravity absolutely unhindered. Anything you want. We're beginning to see that. We're also approaching a time of a similar time of wickedness just exploding. I was struck in my research by how Kent Hughes describes today's society. I want to read it to you. He says, Today at any given time you can turn on the major networks and see men on top of women and women on top of men and same-sex individuals engaging in unseemly acts. When daytime talk shows will plumb any subject, when the holy name of God is blasphemed, dury while most things holy like the virgin birth and sexuality of Jesus are subjects of obscene jokes, when so many of our heroes of our culture are men of violence, when sensuality, violence, comic book fantasy, testosterone, steroids, Viagra, blood is what we voyeuristically drink. And he goes on. If that describes today, imagine what it was like in the time of Noah. It got so bad that twice, twice, God says, I am grieved that I made man. Now it's helpful to understand what God's grief is. Baker's Dictionary of Biblical Theology is helpful here. It writes, God is grieved when his covenantal love is rebuffed by human disobedience and sin. And listen to this. This is important. His anguished response to sin is evidenced in two main ways. Divine judgment and compassion for the sinner. That's kind of the the nutshell, the nut of what it is that God, how he grieves. He grieves in pained anguish in two ways. Judgment and compassion for the sinners. Judgment we see right off here, don't we? I mean, look at verse 7. It says, the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth. We see here in what he makes, he makes the painful decision, the painful decision to wipe out mankind. But yet we cannot miss in verse 6 the anguish in which that God is feeling, the anguish. This gives us a rather interesting angle into God's judgment, doesn't it? And many times we think his judgment is kind of like ours, right? Kind of a, they got their just dessert. A kind of, kind of distorted satisfaction, right? That's not how God judges. God is, exci- is not excited about the prospect of the flood. He does not have the attitude of satisfaction 
But there's pain. There's anguish in making that judgment. Which fuels his compassion, and that's the beautiful thing. Yes, there is judgment, but there's compassion. This was one of the biggest, one of the biggest aha moments I had in seminary. When I was told, kind of in passing, in a lecture, that this professor said, you know, wherever you see judgment in scripture, you always see mercy right there. Just look for it. Judgment and mercy, almost in the same verse, certainly in the same context. And that's what we see here, isn't it? Look at verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of God. Another word for favor there is grace. Noah found grace in the eyes of God. God is just. Let there be no doubt in our mind. God will punish sin. But he is also compassionate. And here he provides a way out. Through Noah. Noah. God is going to show that he is perfectly just and will punish sin. Through Noah, we'll see that God is not ever suffering. That there is a wage to be paid for wickedness. That God will bring down judgment on sin. Yet at the same time, through Noah, we see that God is going to be compassionate. We're going to look at that next week. Through Noah, we see that God is going to be merciful. Through Noah, he extends a hand of grace. Even in the midst of terrible judgment. Let me repeat that so that you can get this on your own. Even in the midst of judgment, he extends grace through one man. Do I have to connect the dot for you? That describes another man, Jesus Christ. At the cross, God's judgment and compassion meet again, don't they? But God's judgment doesn't fall on mankind. God's judgment falls on one person. Jesus Christ. Second Peter 2.24 tells us he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. People of God, when you come to Jesus and you put your trust in him, one of the things you're saying is, please take my guilt, take my sin, absorb my sin in your body. Martin Luther said about Jesus on the cross, Jesus became the worst sinner that had ever lived. He absorbed the sin of mankind. And then the punishment that we all deserve for our sins, the flood of justice, fell on him. In him alone. Washes over Jesus, and he was tormented. He was abused. He went through pain. He went through separation. He died. For our sins. Yet at the same time, God's compassion and grace are extended through that same man, isn't it? Second Peter goes on in the very next sentence. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live in righteousness. By his wounds, 
we have been healed. Isn't that good news? Scripture tells us that those who acknowledge that every inclination of our heart is evil, those who realize the floodwaters of judgment are coming towards them, that the wages of their sin is death, that they cannot save themselves, but need a Savior, death, Jesus' death is healing. By trusting that Jesus died in your place, you are saved. By his wounds, you are healed. God's judgment on Jesus, his grace towards you. That's what this table represents. Justice and mercy. Judgment and grace. Let's take just a few moments to meditate on that before we move in and take the Lord's Supper together.